Hey, Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This episode is brought to you by presenting sponsor Lemieux Company. Lemieux Company works to build better content and tell better stories through video. You can find Lemieux Company on Facebook, Instagram, and at www.lemieux.company. That's L-E-M-I-E-U-X dot company. Lemieux Company. Better content, better stories. And speaking of stories, I'd like to tell a little story before we get to today's guest, um, a little panhandle history. Now, one of the most prominent ranchers in the history of the Texas panhandle was a man named William Henry Bush. He was born in New York, but he came to the panhandle in 1880. Bush married the daughter of Joseph Glidden, who invented barbed wire. And he was sent by Glidden to Texas to find ranch land where they could test the invention. So along with Henry Sanborn, who was another employee of Glidden, Bush established the Frying Pan Ranch. And within that role, with that ranch, he became an important figure in Emerald's early days. He, he was also the founder of Bushland, west of the city. Today's guest is the granddaughter of William Henry Bush. Her name is Mary Emini, and anyone who has been involved with any sort of uh, nonprofits or charities in the Emerald area has likely worked with Mary at some point. Uh, now, we, we talk about fascinating people in Amarillo um, with this podcast, and Mary's story, regardless of the historical connection, is one of the most interesting I've encountered. I, I almost don't know where to start. Uh, she spent part of the 70s living and working in Tanzania and Vietnam. She was one of the founding board members of Habitat for Humanity. Uh, she helped establish it in Amarillo. She here, here in Amarillo, she was central to the establishment of Wildcat Bluff, um, to a sustainable living community west of the city called Mariposa. Uh, even with the Greenway's residential development in southwest Amarillo, she was a partner there. And all of these exist on land that was once part of the Frying Pan Ranch. Um, and so Mary has been so involved uh, in Amarillo's history, in the local philanthropic community, and, and really in looking toward Amarillo's future that I thought she would be a wonderful person to talk to for the podcast. So here is Mary Emini. Mary Emini, thank you for being on Hey Amarillo. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I know that there are a lot of different directions that we could go talking about uh, some of the things that you've been involved with in this area. But before we do that, I would like you to just talk a little bit of, about your history and your family's history, um, how you ended up in Amarillo in the first place and your connection to the area. Well, my connection started a long time ago. My grandfather was here. My mother's father was here in 1880. He was, he was born in 1849, was 60 when my mother was born, so that puts him in context. He died in 1933, so I never met him. But he, uh, he came, his, he had two wives. His first wife died child, childless, but she was the daughter of Joseph Glidden of DeKalb, Illinois, who had the patent on barbed wire. And the frying pan ranch that we still have is, uh, was the first ranch fenced, large ranch fenced in the country as far as we know, and the first ranch fenced in Texas. And much of our... West Fence is still original barbed wire, if you can believe that. So, so that's what brought me here. I've visited here since I was about six. I've known since I was about 10 that I was gonna, this is where I was gonna end up. Just sort of one of those knowing things, but I had to go do some stuff in between. I grew up actually in Shaker Heights, Ohio, which is a you know, well-to-do suburb of Cleveland, and um, went to college in Connecticut. After that, had to go do some other stuff. So I ended up going uh, with the American Friends Service Committee, which is the Quakers, to Tanzania for two years, 
on a program similar to the Peace Corps, uh, except that we went, we were sent out individually instead of in pairs, and we were, I was a BB Mandalaya, which was the, the lowest uh, level on the community de development hierarchy of the government of Tanzania. While we were there, the idea came up of, um, so the guys in our program were all conscientious objectors, and you know that was during the, in the 60s, and uh, the idea came up of, of sending a group to Vietnam. And by the time we ended that discussion, I knew that I was supposed to go. And so I came back from Tanzania in 66, started a master's program at the University of Pittsburgh, went to Vietnam, was supposed to be there for two years, but that was 50 years ago. The big Tet Offensive happened and it became unsustainable for our program to, to stay. I managed to stay on for another four months. So I was, I was, I was assigned to a Buddhist orphanage in Da Nang. After the Tet Offensive, I ended up working with the League of Red Cross, getting food to refugee camps and, and setting up milk feeding programs and you know being helpful any way I could for another four months. And then came back and um, we went in relation to the work that had been started by this Vietnamese Buddhist monk named Thich Nhat Hanh, who was the first Vietnamese to come to this country and speak out against the war and has never been allowed back to Vietnam since except one time about 2005. He was allowed to go back for three weeks. But he has a big center in, in um, France now and, and two centers in this country, and they're setting up one in Thailand. But he invited me to come and work with them. I finished my master's degree um, University of Pittsburgh, and he invited me to come work with them when they were just a fledgling organization based in Paris. So I tell people I got my master's degree in public and international affairs to chauffeur Vietnamese Buddhist monks in Paris. After nine months of that and kind of an abortive trip back to Vietnam, they wouldn't let me back in, uh, I ended up uh, in New York in peace movement stuff for about a year and a half, two years. And then the opportunity came to head up the peace office at the, uh, of the American Friends Service Committee based in San Antonio. So I jumped at that. I was not a New York person at that point. So I jumped at that opportunity, uh, moved to San Antonio in the fall, September 1st of 1971, and a week later met the man who became my husband. That was Hunter Ingalls. That was Hunter Ingalls. He had just also moved to Texas from New York and to teach at, w at UT, and he had been given two names of people to look up. One was an art collector in Houston, and the other one was the man whose job I had come to take. And so we started figuring out all the places we should have met before, and it's one of these synchronistic things that's sort of been very true in my life all the way through. So we lived in San Antonio and Castroville, outside of San Antonio, for several years, and then, and then in 1978 moved up here and moved to a little house, um, little house on the edge of the ranch. We used to answer the phone, little house on the prairie, Ingalls speaking, and hmm. that's and had our three children here and have been here ever since. We've had a ranch manager. It, the ranch had been absentee run for decades, but I sort of took over, sort of co-managed that that job, and now my son Tim is taking that over. So tell me a little bit about the ranch, just just for people who are listening that don't know about the frying pan ranch. Sort of give people like an idea of its size, of its you know location. Well, well basically, okay. Two things you have to know is that well, one, it, it was large certainly by anybody's standards, but Texas. Um, it went from from Western Street when we first moved here. There was still original barbed wire on Western Street, Western Street to the county line the Potter County line west. So that's west of Bushland. But the state of Texas owned every other section. When the state of Texas created itself, it divided, it surveyed everything, divided it into a section, which is square miles, and kept ownership of every even numbered, even num numbered section. So you could fence what you were grazing, but you owed rent to the state for half of it. And if you've seen the play Texas, they have this whole thing, on, one whole scene about 
uh, about being mad at, at Austin for wanting to raise the rents. That's what that was was for. They had they called them school sections, and the idea was that the that the money from that had two two purposes: one that they could give to railroads to entice railroads to come through, and also to pay for schools. The ranch was huge, but we only owned half of it. Okay. And over time, it's been uh, split between our side of the family and my cousin's side of the family, and and you know part of that has meant that we've been right up against the city limits of Amarillo for a long time, and have been involved with development there. And so that's that's really the major part of what we've been able to do in relation to Amarillo. Yeah, let's let's talk about that a little bit. So uh, I know that you've been involved in all kinds of philanthropic efforts since, mm-hmm. since you've been here, from the Globe News Center for the Performing Arts to kind of helping get the medical center established. Um, that was my mom. Th- what your family has, I yeah, guess. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, with Wildcat Bluff and, and mm-hmm. some of those areas. What's, what's the driving force between or behind some of that focus on well, contributing for, to what Amarillo is? Well, for me personally, it's, it's, I'm always looking for what's the next paradigm that we're wanting to shift. And for me, the real, the, the first one was Habitat for Humanity. And um, when we were in San Antonio, I got involved with a Presbyterian minister and his wife, who we ended up starting the first affiliate of Habitat there. And then I was actually in, invited to be, I was, I was on the founding board of Habitat for Humanity. And so when I moved up here, got that started. That was the first thing. And it was really, really kind of wonderful because having lived in Tanzania, having lived in Vietnam, I was really interested in how to serve the less fortunate, I guess is the way to put it, the people who didn't have the kind of economic security and freedom that I had. So I've always been involved in that. My mom was always interested in good city planning. When she saw that the the hospital board, the, 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 the Emerald Hospital Board was planning to build a hospital basically below where the Discovery Center is now. She said, that's nuts. She'd, had, she'd studied architecture, and she hired a, and I remember this guy, his name is Marvin Springer, came to our house in Cleveland, had drawings out on the dining room table. She got an audience uh, with, the, with the hospital board and introduced Marvin Springer, who said, who said first of all, gentlemen, I, ho- I hope you realize that your basement's going to flood when you have a good rain. Secondly, this is and this is pretty interesting. You said secondly, they had a, a beautiful kind of straight straight shot out from the hospital as a, a grand entrance onto ang- in the middle of the angle part of, of Amarillo Boulevard there. And he said, you know, when we design hospitals, we know that everybody coming out of a hospital is in some state of shock. It can be good shock, bad shock, whatever. That's why we make hospital parking lots complicated to get out. Hmm. We want people to make two turns before they get on a major street. <laughs> and by the way. Miss, Mrs. Emony and her brother-in-law at that point would be happy to donate this piece of property up on the hill if you all would do it. And so the deal was that they gave the property, because we owned the section west of that, they gave the property where, where BSA and Northwest Hospitals are. And the deal, the original deal was that if the medical center would be made a place for not-for-profit health-related organizations and a, and a city park that they would donate that property. So that's how that happened. That's That was my mom's thinking. That's the way she thought. For me, it's it's gone somewhat in that same kind of direction, but I'm always interested. I kind of inherit a little bit of her way of thinking that way, but I'm, I'm, I've always been interested in how can we live sustainably in this part of the world, you know? And I really, what we call development, it makes me cry, really, 
you know, you take good farmland and pave it over mm -hmm. and basically make it an, a, a, a money and energy and water sink rather than something that is, that is sustainable long term. And that what I've studied for a number of years is how to think in terms of regenerative regenerative development. In other words, how can you help the land to actually produce more life than it does? The greenways kind of came out of that kind of thinking based in, in permaculture. Uh, we brought in an architect named, named Mike Corbin, who was kind of the father of that way of thinking in terms of development. The, the whole idea of the linear parks and um, smaller lot lines and, and making the whole the whole place water efficient and open all the way around. I mean, one of the one of the restrictions was one of the restrictions was you had to have have two trees on your property that are were within ten feet of the road road because if you have a shaded street, you can reduce the ambient temperature by up to fifteen degrees in the summer. I mean, so it's just this sensible stuff. So from the very beginning, I mean, those, those, those were, were all those are, those are, stipulated. Those part, those part in, the, in, the, in, the, in the restrictions, yeah. We got about half of what I wanted, but they, it was a good start. And the whole idea of the linear parks that were taking the water down to the playa, so that whole thing was part of that. Mariposa is a more radical thought, but we're looking at uh, ways to how, to how to think in terms of more sustainable development, and we're, we're kind of on a waiting game, really. I'm great at holding an idea until the right people show up who know how to do it, and we're getting people now who are interested in helping to make that happen. Tell me what your vision is for Mariposa Village. Well, it's, it's, uh, we're set up as a community land trust so that the community, it's a not-for-profit, the community will own the, owns the property. You can own, you'll have a 99-year lease on it, but and you'd own your own building if, if you build it. But um, what we would like is to have a, very much of a mixed-use community where deed restrictions or you know covenants around building materials, around water catchment, around as much as possible self energy self-sufficiency. We also would like would like in terms of the way we're thinking that we don't want one five-acre plots all over the place. What we'd like would be to cluster buildings so that you can have as much open open space as possible and make it as much as walker walking and biking friendly as possible and very very much mixed use. That's a work in progress that probably will be beyond my lifetime. I think. Tell tell me what it's like, maybe psychologically. You know what what we have is when Amarillo does grow, it's expanding out into farm and ranch. Exactly. Properties. Exactly. Um, these are ranches that have been here for a hundred years. Mm -hmm. You know, as as someone who is so intimately connected to that history and to that land, is is it hard to see it developing, even if it's developing into something that you've helped plan, like the greenways? Is it hard to see that land change? Yes, in some ways, less so in other ways. Um, I hate just seeing sprawl. Obviously, if it grows, but one of the things that, that we're interested in, and my son Tim is very interested in helping to, to get people to realize, is that the more you build out, the more debt burden you put on the city long term. So the more streets, with, developers have to put in the streets and the sewers, but then the city has to maintain them, and those things deteriorate over time. And so the more um, square footage you have in that level of public property that's not actually producing anything, the more burden you put on the city taxpayers. We're really interested in how do you build dense, more densely in a way that, for one thing, slows down traffic and makes it much more friendly um, but also reduces the cost long term to the city. Think of the difference. Think of the, the difference between driving down any of the streets in Wolfland with their big trees, Hayden or Ong or any of those, and how nice that feels, as opposed to driving on Coulter, mm -hmm. or as opposed to driving through Sleepy Hollow. You know, it's a very different 
and even the greenways, though, that's getting there because the trees are growing. But but that feel of those narrower streets, we really had to push to get narrower streets in, in greenways. But to see that, that actually is a long-term benefit to the city. And it and, and it's kind of been documented that the more square footage you put into streets, the more traffic jams you have. This has been documented mm-hmm. in highways all, all over. Of all our streets are about, it's kind of like water, about passing through rather than enjoying where you are. And so we're more interested if we if we're going to grow into a into a city that's not a Los Angeles, probably small for doubt for sure. But you have to think in terms of neighborhoods that are walkable and encourage people to be out on the streets and that are mixed use, so you don't have to get into a car to drive to get a, a gallon of milk, you know, or to take your kids everywhere. You know, the way our cities are set up now, or at least Amarillo is, you can't go anywhere without a car. Yeah, and that's long term unsustainable. Or long-term, I'll put it this way, cost-ineffective for a city. So it's how to think think beyond that model of lay out a section of houses with, with a few amenities around the edges. It's a way of thinking. And if you think, if you try to think sustainably, uh, it's so much fun for me to go buy the, the newest of the Habitat editions. It's down off 26th Street, uh, 26th and Roberts. And it's, it's all refugee families down there. There's mostly Burmese and Somali. They all have gardens in the back mm-hmm. that are beautiful. I mean, they're growing all their own vegetables in the back. I mean, they're making that, and, they're, and it's a very walkable place with a park right there, and they're very, very involved in that kind of stuff. And to me, that's the kind of model of the future. And it's, that, that's a cultural challenge mm-hmm. in Amarillo. It is do a cultural you, do challenge. Do you feel like you're trying to, uh, to kind of push Amarillo towards it? Or is, is there a, a change that needs to happen within the culture to focus more on sustainability? Well, I prefer more. Less on driving and yeah. petroleum. and. In- well, I, I prefer the idea of magnetism, of, of people see the benefit and, and, and want to move that way than, than trying to push it. But yeah, I think that, that develop, it's one of the reasons that we're trying, this is one of the reasons we did we did greenways, and that became a model for, for development. For, you know, colonies was basically based off that that model, and others, other groups have too. It's why we're trying to do Mariposa, say, you've, you know, until you see an alternative, people aren't aren't likely to jump into one. So if we can demonstrate, okay, here's here's a community that would be really fun to live in because of this, 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 then people will be drawn to that kind of thinking. Thinking of of Amarillo's future, and and just thinking of you know the trying to live sustainably in a place that does have sort of a difficult climate, mm-hmm. a, a harsh climate. Mm-hmm. You know where where do you see? Amarillo going, you know, in the next 10 to 20 years, and, and what's going to be necessary to get to where you want it to be? Well, I think, first of all, is thinking 10 to 20 years out and not just thinking five, three to five years out. And, and really thinking about one of the things that Anthony Harris said in his is that is that your weakest community is going to be your bottom line. And, and that's very true. Just the, the spending patterns in Amarillo have favored Southwest Amarillo. And until we have equal interest in every part of Amarillo it's not going to be it's going to be separate communities that are doing their own thing and rather than a than a city that's a whole so that's that's number one number two we keep saying that we have well water forever but the more we grow the faster that that depletes it was estimated um, and I'm not sure who did this and I'd have to get it checked but that if we collected the water off of every roof in, roof in Amarillo, we would not have to we would not have to pump a drop. Hmm. So water catchment is is huge, and there are ways that you can design for water catchment. 
There are ways that you can design, for example, one of the reasons we don't want we don't want everybody to have your own septic system is that there are ways that you can design for bioremediation of wastewater so that you actually end up that and it's a beautiful they're beautiful gardens that, that basically recycle the waste and it comes out cleaner than the city water. So those are the kinds of things we're interested in. Obviously I'm delighted that the city's now thinking about solar, which is they've, you know, had nothing to do with until now, but there's actually a program this afternoon about that put on by the city about incorporating solar. And we have certainly plenty of sun. We obviously have plenty of wind, but for in town sun is better. And so anything that we can do in those in those arenas is, is going to reduce Fossil fuel costs is going to reduce energy costs. It's going to reduce all that stuff over, over time. And then anything we can do to be more bike-friendly and pedestrian-friendly is, is going to help us be a more cohesive community. With, with your emphasis on those things, I guess the culture here is pretty conservative, mm-hmm. not always friendly toward environmental causes or maybe suspicious of sustainable types of living. Is, is that something that you found difficult to sort of pursue or advocate for in this area? I don't know. I think we find our own we find our own folks. I it's it's slow. I don't find it difficult. It's just slow. And we're also very practical and when people see a practical cost-effective reason for doing something, we tend to do it. So, it's like change is slow, but once it happens, it once once people get it, it can happen very quickly. To me, it's it it's a process, not an event, and you just have to you have to go with the process and appreciate when there's movement and don't get angry when there isn't. What, what's one of the biggest changes in, in that area that you've seen over the last few years where it, it was slow to happen and then all of a sudden it happened? Um, well, the idea that you can have chickens in your backyard is one. Okay. A lot more people are, are interested, interested, in interested in that than five or six in, years ago. Yeah, exactly. And this, and and I think a lot of that has actually been may I, I don't know of this, but I suspect that a lot of that has to do with our refugee populations who are used to having their whole their whole world in their backyards. You know, I mean, the best gardeners in town are the Burmese. They're phenomenal, and the Vietnamese. They're very very good. So 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 that's one. I think that there's a growing understanding that walkable places is 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 good. Is good. Beyond that, certainly, certainly the environment is, has embraced wind, but that again is a huge economic boon. Right. Um, Talk to me just just in closing about uh, Wildcat Bluff and the role that an organization that is is focused on you know the the natural surroundings, the mm-hmm. the environmental side of the Texas Panhandle and the, the the animals that live here. I mean, why why is that an important educational place? For one thing, it's close to Amarillo, and everybody loves Palladero Canyon, but this is closer, it's much more accessible, it's easy to get to. Part of the, of the thinking that I've been working with has to, really is about where we live, where we live has a lot to do with how we can live. And so the more we understand the ecology that we live in, obviously the wind is a huge factor here. I think it's part of what makes the, quite the panhandle spirit what it is. We're equal in the wind, you know. I don't care who you are. The wind and the the weather shifts and all that stuff, that has a, has an effect on draw, you know, on on pulling people together because traditionally they had to for for survival, and that's a cultural gift that we maintain and is one of the very very special things about Amarillo. So the more we understand the ecology of where we live, there's even some thoughts that each un- each place is unique, just as each person is unique. And if you can tap into what's the uniqueness of that, then 
as you grow or as you as you develop as a culture within that community, you can be in line with what's what is that place is asking of us to be. So so that that's a little esoteric, but the more I think about it and study it, it's the more real it seems to me. So for me, Wildcat Bluff is a is an introduction for a lot of people to that. Uh, for a lot of people, it's just a it's a gift to have a place where there's close to town where you can just go hike and there's no houses and there's no roads and there's no whatever. And it's it's a pretty it's a beautiful site. It's a very beautiful site. So one of the things I like most about being a writer is the opportunity to tell people's stories. Journalism is a great way to do that. Another great way to do that, uh, obviously, is, is a podcast. Um, and that's one of the reasons I started this podcast. But one of the most powerful ways to tell a story is through video. I have a background in advertising and marketing, and people within that community know that there's no better way to convey a message and to harness the power of emotion than with video. Today's sponsor is a video-first marketing company called Lemieux Company. Lemieux is focused on creating content that evokes emotion and provokes action. Whether it's a 30-second spot or a branded short film, Lemieux Company digs deep to gather a thorough understanding of your target audience and the story you want to tell. So combining that understanding with a track record of beautiful storytelling and compelling visuals generates a project that, in turn, generates results. I've collaborated with Wilson Lemieux in the past on various projects, and he is a pro's pro, one of the best in the business. So you can find more about Lemieux Company online at lemieux.company. That's L-E-M-I-E-U-X dot company. Find them on Instagram, find them on Facebook, and, and see a little bit of Lemieux Company's work. Lemieux Company, better content, better stories. Okay, we're back with Mary Emini. Uh, Mary, this is the, the part of the show that I call eight straight, sort of a lightning round, and I'm going to ask you eight straight questions. Okay. Uh, your job is just to answer those however you would like to answer those. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the first one, I'll, I'll try to go real easy on the first one. What is your favorite restaurant in Amarillo? Um, I probably have two. The two that I go to the most are like Anthony Panhandlers and Braceros on 6th Street. Okay. Why Braceros? I love the people and I love their chili rellenos. I always get a chili relleno, cheese chili relleno on the cart. They know it when I come in. They always get exactly what I want. <laughs> but they're wonderful. You've uh, you spent uh, most of your life here in Amarillo pretty intimately connected to the art scene. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have a favorite local artist? Oh, my gosh. I don't think I could say I have a favorite. I have several that I really like, and for different reasons. John Rivette, I love the bigness of what he does. Um and he's actually done some work out at, yeah, at Mariposa. Mariposa. Mm-hmm. And I like the way he thinks. Jacob Breeden, I, I like the variety of things that he's able to able to pull together. <laughs> I enjoy Chris Johnson. I like Patsy Kaiser. I, there's a there's a whole lot of them that I like. I could I, I could list I could list fifty, but those are the those are the four or five that I talk with the most. Uh, David Corbin's just a, do- a delight. I mean, he's again so creative and so many. So many different things that he does, and I can't say that I know all the artists anymore. You know, Hunter was very, very involved. I'm less so. I, I hate to actually, to, I'd actually rather not answer that question because I don't want to leave anybody out. <laughs> right. Do, do you think that um, for a city this size, I mean, does does Amarillo have a surprisingly strong arts community? I mean, is, is that something I, I, that I, th- I think it does? I think it's it's a it, the visual arts. I think some people would say it's a bit immature as a city grows. That that there's very little that's very experimental. 
you know, that's what certainly Jacob and John are trying to push is more of that. But the music and the theater is phenomenal here. I mean, to have what we have musically is just remarkable, remarkable. What does Amarillo have too much of? What does Amarillo have too much of? I think it has too much, and this is beginning to shift, but I think it has too much of, quote, good old boy mentality. The way we've always done it is the way it always that it has to be done. And um, it, it's part of the cultural shift that's going on in, in, in this country, actually. And I think we're, we're, we're part of it. I, I think we're, we're blessed here. On the other side of that, we're blessed here that we're, again, the panhandle spirit. We know we may not agree with policy, but we don't make enemies of people as a result of that. And I think that that's, that's going to be our saving grace and that we actually, through that, may have a way of, may be able to, to demonstrate how political, economic, worldview differences can, can work towards common ends effectively. What does Amarillo not have enough of? Um, it doesn't have enough of a vision of what it wants to be 20 years from now. This is the city we would like to live into. All of our vision is based on, or all of our development is based on what other people do in other places rather than what's unique about, about Amarillo and how do we want to be unique going forward. As I, as I tell people, like to, like to say to people, people do not go to Santa Fe to go to the big box stores at the south of town. Right. So what is it unique about Amarillo? If we work with that and do more of that, we will be able to, we will be able to do it. I think some of the developments going on on Polk Street is, is a step in that direction. But we need a lot more of that in all areas of town. So in, instead of trying to be, be somebody Dallas, in Dallas or, or Fort Worth, what's unique about us? What's unique about us and how do we build on that? What, uh, what questions do outsiders ask you most about Amarillo? Um, well, what I would say is that mostly when people come, when people come, First of all, how do you how do you how do you stand the wind? How do you stand the, the weather? And I say, well, actually, we have better weather than most places in the country. Much of the when year. it's nice, it's when really it's, when nice. When it's nice, it's really nice, and there's a lot of that. Uh, we get used to the wind, but um, more what I find people from the outside are absolutely amazed at you know what we all call the Panhandle spirit and how friendly and helpful and generous people are here. Where do you think that comes from? I think it comes. Uh, I think as I said earlier, I think that comes a lot from. Having been a nice, very isolated community, and having had to had to work together to to survive, and I really think that that actually the wind and the weather and the is 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 part of it. I mean, because that keeps us. It, it's it's the great equalizer. You know, I don't care where you live in Amarillo. You walk outside and you're hit by that wind, and that has an effect. I I think of, um, and this is a little bit unrelated, but I I think of some of the. Some of the the studies that say that, that like families that go through intense events together, where mm-hmm. whether it's a sickness or a terrible camping trip or mm-hmm. whatever it might be, those are always the memories that are the strongest, strongest. and what pulls people together. And yeah. it's it's going through that sort of exactly small scale trauma of mm-hmm. bad weather or something mm-hmm. that whatever that brings us together. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting perspective. What uh, what do you think is the most underrated thing to do in Amarillo? Oh my gosh, huh. I would say. Sort of every component of Amarillo has its own has its own following, but I would say probably the most underrated thing to do in Amarillo is drive around Amarillo and experience the diversity here. Instead of just driving around your, your, your southwest Amarillo neighborhood. neighborhood or whatever you, whatever your neighborhood is, mm-hmm. I mean there are people 
in Anthony Harris's church who have never crossed Amarillo Boulevard, you know, and there are lots of people in southwest Amarillo who've never crossed it the other way. Drive out to the Eastridge community and it's a whole world out there that most people don't even know exists. And I think that there's a number of those. I would love to see ourselves, see us embrace the diversity and celebrate the diversity that we have. But I think, I think experiencing it first, even knowing that it exists, is, is step number one. What, uh, you're, you're involved in so many different uh, nonprofits and organizations. Is, is there one that is closest to your heart? I can't say one. They're, they all are different, you know, they rise and fall, but one or the other grabs my attention at one time, you know, more of my attention than the other. How many mm-hmm. do you, are you on the board of? I mean, well, currently, well, I, ju- I, just res- I just resigned from Wildcat Bluff after many, too many years on it. Since it began, right? Well, I, no, I had a couple of breaks, but, okay. but I've been on most, most of its life. And it's time for me to move on. I'm on that one. I'm on um, a little pro- program called Promise Project that's uh, working to... Uh, Panhandle Promise Panhandle Project. Panhandle Promise, Promise Project. And then um, uh, Mariposa are the three big ones for right, free ones right now. What? And this is a, a question I want to ask you. I have not asked this of other guests, but you're so intimately tied to the history of Amarillo mm-hmm. and the Panhandle and the region. Is, what, who do you think is one of the most interesting people in Amarillo history? And you can go as far back as you want to go. Mrs. Oliver Eccles. Okay. Yes, she's fascinating. Fascinating. I would love to have met her. She was um, from Georgia, I think, or Tennessee, uh, from a timber. Her her family was very wealthy from timber. Uh, Her husband moved here, and she moved here. And she's the person who gave what's now Memorial Park. Um, And one of her dying wishes, she says, I wish I had given more parkland. But so, so that's the little bit that I know about her. But she sounds like a fascinating person. I would love to have met her. Okay, and and those are my eight questions. I, I like to end each show, Mary, by asking the guests to endorse something locally. So this can be anything that you want to recommend to people um, to experience or or see or do in Amarillo. Two that I'm really, you know, I've talked about the ones I'm involved in. Two others that I think are just dynamite are Heal the City and uh, the College Success Initiative. Uh, Heal the City, of course, is... Um, and it's really Heal the Panhandle because they're getting, and beyond because they're getting people from Oklahoma Offers and in. free medical services, services every week. Yeah. Uh, College Success Initiative is actually something that started with, um, with Anthony, Anthony Harris. Harris's church at St. Exactly. John and has St. spun John's. off on its own. And it's, and it's a dynamite organization. I mean, what they're doing with those kids is just remarkable. And the involvement of young professionals and helping, helping other students move forward. It's a, it's a really brilliant and wonderful wonderful thing that's going on. Mary Emini, thank you for being on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been a joy. And that concludes another episode of Hey Amarillo. Uh, I want to say thanks to Mary Emini for uh, hosting this conversation in her office. Uh, it was a pleasure to talk to her. I want to say thanks to uh, Wilson Lemieux and Lemieux Company for sponsoring this episode. You can find more about Hey Amarillo at Hey Amarillo on Twitter. Uh, find us on Facebook, follow us there, and tell a friend about the podcast. I I appreciate everyone who listens uh, week to week as we talk to more people living in this city. I I appreciate um, the kind comments and reviews on iTunes and Facebook and everything else that the podcast has received. I appreciate it. My name is Jason Boyette. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week.